Welcome back to another episode, diving into Sean McMeekin's Stalin's War, A New History of World War II. Joining me today in this discussion on chat section 2, chapter 9, Stalin Strikes, the Baltic, Bessarabia, and Bukovina. I'm joined by Charlemagne. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thanks for inviting me on for this series. This is one of my favorite books, and also this is among my favorite chapters as well, so this should be good. Well, it, it worked out because uh, for those who are listening early behind the paywall, uh, where I'm actually recording these out of order, I, I saved the the episode for the Khitan massacre in Poland uh, for for Pete Quinones for maximum spice. So we're we're kind of doing this out of order. I'm recording with him on Monday, but um, before we get too far into it, um, do you mind telling the audience who you are and what you do in case people aren't familiar with you? Oh yes, so. Well, I have a YouTube channel uh, under the name Charlemagne, and I am most well known for my videos about uh, Mencius Moldbug, or Curtis Yarvin, as he now calls himself. Um, I started a blog called Neo Reactor on Substack, and I think most importantly, uh, I'm a member of the Old Glory Club and am dedicating a lot of my time to that, both the YouTube channel and the uh, Substack. So that's what I do. And uh, Charlemagne's links will be down below in the description. Highly recommend his Substack. A lot of great book reviews, and uh, as a patron, highly recommend it. So we're going to get started here. Um, so Section Two, Chapter Nine: Stalin Strikes. Uh, and you, you know the drill. Just like the Pete and Yona's book stuff, uh, interrupt me whenever you want to make a point or elaborate. Diplomatic and strategic logic would suggest that the nearer the Allies came to open conflict with the Soviet Union, the closer Stalin would draw to Hitler to stave off encirclement. And yet German leaders had near, had been nearly as disturbed by Sovi the Soviet invasion of Finland as the Allies were, though without without not without a hint of schadenfreude about the Russian reverses. At the end of December 1939, when the Soviet position looked bleakest, the German general staff concluded that the Red Army, although a gigantic military instrument, would be no match for an army with modern equipment and superior leadership. The German Admiralty did offer Stalin quiet support, coordinating a few naval operations out of a joint German-Soviet Arctic base at Zabadania Litza Bay. The German Foreign Office also had prevented the transit across German territory of any war material from Italy, Hungary, or Belgium to Finland, while German diplomats warned Sweden that intervention on Finland's side would be regarded by Hitler as a hostile act. Ribbentrop's trade officials signed a sweeping new commercial agreement with Moscow on February 11, 1940, which expanded the trade targets for Russian commodities such as grain, oil, cotton, manganese, iron ore, nickel, chrome, platinum, and other materials in exchange for German deliveries of tank, light bomber, hel and helicopter prototypes, aero engines and blueprints, artillery pieces, armored vehicles, gun sights, and a battle cruiser under construction, the Lotsov, which the Germans promised us, uh, to tow to Leningrad. Despite these gestures, German diplomats were annoyed by Stalin by offering to mediate an end to the Finnish war, offers Stalin continually and firmly rejected. Okay, stop. So, yes, uh, these early chapters in this book are excellent. I think a lot of people like the uh, FDR bashing, basically, that comes later on, or at least the material for uh, FDR bashing. You know, uh, McMeekin himself is uh, pretty objective in his analysis. Uh, but that said, uh, I find it more interesting, this period before the war, uh, well, Parts of the war have uh, commenced at this point, but the, the full conflict uh, that is World War II, you know, 
mainly Germany versus Russia hasn't actually begun yet. And this is particularly weird what's in this paragraph, right? Because here you have Russia at war with Finland and Germany is helping uh, Russia defeat Finland by blocking resources, including even from Italy going to Finland. So this just seems utterly bizarre. And one of the things I like about McMeekin is how thorough he is um, getting down to this, this point that the Germans are even constructing a warship uh, for the Soviets, which will be taken to Leningrad. That just seems very very strange um so it's like well, what's going on here um one of the things that this book makes really clear is that world war ii was really a war between three different powers the soviet union germany and then britain and its allies and the the ultimate decision that would determine what the sides would be in the actual uh, fully fledged war that would break out were yet to be determined at this point um, and in large part, not, not entirely because Germany could have still defeated the Soviet Union, but in large part, the war was actually won by Stalin, uh, before, uh, a shot was fired, uh, by Germany against the Russians. And, you know, we'll get into that as we progress in the chapter, but, you know, it's, it's really interesting to see the Germans openly cooperating with the Soviets. And it's also interesting. I mean, one of the things this chapter really does is, is show how, how adeptly Stalin maneuvered um, the Soviet Union in, in relation to Germany and Great Britain in order to keep both at arm's length and to try and keep both powers as uh, as, as set against one another as they could. Like it, th at no point is this alliance between Germany and Russia actually a real alliance in any capacity. It's it's just a diplomatic maneuvering to try and ensure that the Soviets have the upper hand in the war that's going to break out, which of course they inevitably do because they secure Britain on side against Germany. But anyway, um, I think it's, that's enough said just on that paragraph. Yeah. And I, I think it's also important to just recognize in the previous chapters, especially early on in this book, the first half McMeekin does a really good job at, at carefully giving you almost this tragedy of an alternate timeline where, you know, the Russo-Finnish war is playing out at the end of 39, 1940, and you're seeing Hungary, what the Polish government in exile, the, the Baltic states, England, Mussolini's Italy and Japan all ready to go and offer supplies, material, arms and volunteers to uh, Finland. And yet, despite all this, the the fact is, is that Stalin has really managed to successfully negotiate by having the economic leverage necessary of the German war machine to keep Germany from joining in on their side and sort of taking out the weaker opponent. And uh, like we see here in this paragraph, right, just the, the, the exact things that the Germans need, oil, cotton, manganese, iron, everything that you would need to keep a war machine going, you know, this part, I don't think, gets enough uh, em emphasis on uh, this text. Everyone likes to focus on the America's always been read with, since FDR and such as that. Yeah, and I think this chapter is actually set right after the chapter that more or less explains how close Britain um, and its allies uh, were from going to war with the Soviet Union. Um, because one of the reasons I like this chapter in particular is because it really highlights Stalin's conquests that are happening simultaneously alongside Germany. And, you know, it sort of allows us to firmly reject the narrative that, you know, uh, Hitler was some unique big, big, 
big bad guy uh, and that's why we had to go to war with him because here you you have Stalin doing more or less the exact same things alongside him so we can't really say that you know there was some sort of necessity here in any capacity because you could look at both Stalin and Hitler as as playing the same game in cooperation with each other to undermine Great Britain um, which they were both doing uh, using each other yeah we'll carry on Resenting the slight, after signing his own peace treaty with Finland, Stalin ordered Soviet diplomats and trade officials to retaliate against Hitler's people in ways petty, denying or slow-walking visas for German trade officials, political, refusing to release German nationals captured by the Russians in Poland, of whom 129,000 had been registered to date, and truly consequential, holding up promised shipments to Germany of Caucasian oil and Ukrainian wheat. On April 5th, 1940, Ambassador Schulenberg protested against these flagrant violations in a meeting with Stalin's trade commissar, Anastas Mikoyan, who responded that Schulenberg considered a very negative manner. On April 8th, Schulenberg demanded an audience with Molotov, only to be put off with fl a flimsy excuse. Stalin Just real quick. Be... Yep, oh, ahead. sorry. That wasn't actually no, the end forward. of the paragraph, but whatever. Just real quick. <laughs> um, this is very... Uh, this is a tactic Stalin uses repeatedly and you'll see this uh once you start uh getting to the later chapters and negotiations with fdr um where what stalin will do is he'll always make sure uh he'll he'll stretch uh whatever deal he has as far as possible to not fulfill his obligations so he will he will slow roll whatever the soviet obligations are for you know whatever aid uh they're receiving from some other party he will slow roll it in general as much as possible in this in this very petty way in order to make the deals as one-sided as possible uh so just useful to keep that in mind uh and watch out for that pattern yeah and i mean we saw this too when he was forcing the sort of deadlines to just basically give up sovereignty for latvia lithuania and estonia that will just slow roll you and basically hold you hostage despite having some kind of essence of diplomatic immunity to go back to your own country. Just any time where he can bend the rules to his favor and exert the most leverage as possible. This is a, a through line of Stalin's foreign policy throughout the entire book and his uh, political career. So Stalin appeared to be souring on his strategic marriage with Hitler. Then, suddenly, as if a switch had been thrown, all tensions between Moscow and Berlin vanished. On April 10th, Molotov agreed to see Schulenberg and apologized for the recent suspension of petroleum and grain shipments, a mistake he attributed to an excessive zeal of subordinate agencies. Amazed at the change, Schulenberg thought of a likely explanation. Germany's lightning invasions of Denmark and Norway on April 8th and 9th, 1940. By landing troops at Christiansand, Stravanger, Bergen, Trondheim, Narvik, and Oslo, the Germans had beaten Britain to the punch and foiled Allied plans to cut Hitler off from his Scandinavian in, um, t iron, timber, and nickel supplies, neutralizing the British threat to Soviet interests in the far north. Our Scandinavian operations, Schulenberg wrote to Ribbentrop on April 11th, must have relieved the Soviet government enormously. Stalin, Schulenberg noted, was, as always, extraordinarily well-informed, and must therefore have known of the Allied plans to occupy Norway and Sweden, and was terrified of them. The Soviet government, the ambassador surmised, saw the English and the French appearing on the shores of the Baltic Sea, and they saw the Finnish question reopened. Finally, they dreaded the danger of becoming involved in a war with two great powers. Apparently, Schulenberg noted with satisfaction, this fear was relieved by us. 
Yeah, so this part's really important as well. Oh, yeah, you should go to the map, actually, while we talk. Um, this is really important as well, because when we talk about the German invasion of Norway, what tends to be the focus is that they're um, uh, short-circuiting the imminent British invasion designed to cut you know, Germany off from its critical resources there. Now, there's another aspect to this, which McBeacon covers. And again, one of the reasons this book is so great is because it's so thorough, is that the, the British were set against the Soviet Union uh, diplomatically at this point for its aggressive invasion of Finland. And as we can see from the map, uh, if Britain had occupied Norway, it would have had a oppor an opportunity to actually funnel war material to Finland, uh, which would have been a significant problem for the Soviets, because obviously that war did not go particularly well for them as it is. So we can see here again, just sort of how well Stalin is playing Germany uh, against a, another competitor in order to always end up in the superior position where his weaknesses are minimized while the uh, enemy's resources are expended uh, in achieving that. I mean, it's really quite remarkable how Stalin is able to do this at every stage of the war as it develops, which, you know, of course, that's why the, the title of the book is what it is, right? Because World War II uh, is much more uh, designed by Joseph Stalin than it is Adolf Hitler. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we do have to keep in mind in previous chapters that the, for a very small moment in time, the British War Cabinet was considering some kind of war with the Soviet Union over Finland and was concerned. And they even, you know, had these diplomatic backtracks saying, listen, if the Soviets were to invade Finland and Sweden, then we would get involved, which, of course, given how the war was going between Finland and the Soviets, uh, an invasion of Sweden did not look likely at all at this time. So they they had the caveats to pull back. But, you know, even then, right, the small moment in time fizzles out as the renewed focus again is on on Germany and the diplomatic relations as Hitler is, is trying to offer peace to Neville Chamberlain's government in late 39 and uh, in the 1940s. And so, yeah, Stalin has been using the economic leverage he needs over the German war machine, especially with Ukrainian wheat and the oil that they're going to absolutely need for their war machine. And so instead, he's managed to successfully utilize that diplomatic leverage, as McMeekin has pointed out since the beginning of this text. You know, I'd, I'd rather watch the rest of the world fight each other first before we can mop everything else up. And that's the strategy that he's been using so far very successfully is to get Germany to do what the Soviet Union wants, what may not be in German interest. In one month, the strategic landscape had been transformed in Stalin's favor by allied delay and indecision. Stalin's guile in ending the Finnish war and the German strike in Norway. Of course, the Allies did not give up hope even after the Germans occupied the capital, Oslo, on April 9th and installed a puppet government led by Vidkun Quisling. Under British naval cover, the Allies expelled the Germans from Narvik, installing a mixed force of the French Foreign Legion troops, Scots and Irish guards, and Polish exile forces there, only a few hundred miles from Petsamo. All but joining the Norwegian battle on Hitler's side, Stalin authorized Hitler to use German Soviet Arctic, the German-Soviet Arctic naval base to resupply the German destroyers that cleared the British flotilla from Narvik in June. Meanwhile, the British and French Communist parties were mobilized in a press campaign denouncing the Allies' imperialist aggression in Scandinavia. As if celebrating Hitler's Norwegian victory as his own, on May 5th, Stalin promoted uh, Semyon Timoshenko to the Marshal of the Soviet Union and named him Commissar of Defense. 
With the threat of Allied intervention receding, Stalin gave his new defense commissar license to undertake genuine military reforms. Uh, Marshal Timoshenko extended the training period for recruits from 45 to 90 days, reintroduced old czarist ranks such as admiral and general, smartened up uniforms, and restored the spit and polished discipline the politicized Red Army had been lacking. A Politburo decree abrogated the clause of in the notorious Order Number no. 1 of 1917, forbidding the saluting of officers. Timoshenko also promoted officers such as Zukov, who had, who had proved themselves in the Battle of Kalkin Gol or in Finland. Uh, Stalin had used the strategic pause born of the Finnish armistice and the German victory in Norway to give Timoshenko a virtually unlimited credit line for modernizing the Red Army, via ramped-up production of tanks, including the heavy KVs that had proved their worth in the Karelian Isthmus and the equally durable but faster state-of-the-art medium tank, the T-34, of which 600 were ordered, capital investment in the extension of railways into European Russia, and the construction of new aerodromes and tank parks. Yeah, so we get to hear the practical effects of Stalin now feeling like there's no longer a threat from the Allies on his flanks, uh, and Germany is now more preoccupied in Norway uh, and is not hostile towards uh, the Soviets uh, at this point. Uh, and, you know, the results are, are basically Stalin feels that he has room to transform the Red Army from the basket case that it was into something that resembles more of a traditional army that has the proper, you know, rank and file order uh, in it, as well as various modernizations. Yeah, he's got time to breathe. He has the chance to expand and modernize. And um, again, this all benefits the Soviet Union. The danger of Allied intervention had not disappeared entirely. On April 9th, British Air Command, having received Mokfail's surveillance reports of Baku and Batumi, shared these with General Weigand of France's Middle Eastern Command in Syria and began collaborative planning of an Allied strike in Transcaucasia. We shall shortly be in position, Colonel Leslie Hollis of the Air Ministry reported to the War Office on April 9th, 1940, to put forward a coordinated plan for the consideration by the French and British high commands. To reassure the French that the British had not given up hope, the War Office's Joint Intelligence Subcommittee sent Fitzroy McLean to France en route to Ankara and, uh, Ankara and Damascus, where he was to meet with General Wigand. McLean arrived in Paris on May 13th in time to have a front row seat as the Germans launched their invasion of, of France and the Low Countries. On May 15th, McLean returned to London, his aborted mission having fallen victim to superior German military initiative. McLean's post-Paris memorandum, like the Allied intervention plans that lay behind his trip, was memory hold, thus depriving British policymakers of his perceptive observation that Stalin's abiding aim was to prolong the war between allies, the Allies and Germany in hope of weakening both sides. And that, that last sentence there is really just the, the, the key thesis of this early Soviet policy um, of late 1930s, early 40s. Yeah, we could also see, as it's pointed out there, the, the Allies never had the initiative in this entire conflict. Uh, they were always either outmaneuvered by Stalin or by the Germans before they were able to act. Now, we probably shouldn't read too far into that planning uh, in regards to uh, an attack on the Soviet Union and Transcaucasia. Um, you know, it's, it's it's the job of this military staff to come up with contingency plans for that. So I don't think we should read in that, you know, some sort of attack was imminent and it was only the 
German invasion of France that, you know, prevented that from happening. But, you know, the point stands that this policy was even being considered at all in Great Britain uh, at the time is is the takeaway. Yeah, I agreed. Not until the Germans launched their long-expected Western offensive on May 10th, 1940, were Stalin's anxieties about Allied intervention against him put to rest. Hitler's offensive promised to satisfy Stalin's principal objective in signing the Moscow Pact. Somehow, France and Britain had so far wiggled out of fighting a real war of attrition between the capitalist great powers, leaving Poland to its fate and then sitting on their heels during the long, phony war, which the Germans had mocked as Sitzkrieg. So passive had the Western allies been that Russia, despite being neutral in the European war, had done more fighting than they had so far in Finland. This had not been Stalin's plan, but now British and French soldiers too would fight, bleed, and die. Finally, communists could enjoy watching two groups of capitalist countries having a good hard fight and weakening each other, as Stalin boasted to the Comintern's general secretary, Dimitrov, on September 1939. It did not turn out quite the way Stalin had hoped, however. In a series of brilliant coups, the German parachute troops seized bridges and fortresses all over Belgium and Holland, while the panzer divisions of Generals Paul Ludwig Edvard von Kleist and Heinz uh, Guderianch massed through the Ardennes Forest, outflanked France's defensive Maginot Line, isolated the main Allied forces to the north, and raced towards the Channel. By May 15th, when McLean returned to Paris, the Netherlands had already surrendered, the Allied High Command was in a panic, and the Premier, Paul Reynaud, had telephoned London to announce prematurely, and if understandably, that France had been defeated. In five days, Hitler's audacious offensive had transformed the strategic landscape beyond anyone's imagining. Yeah, I guess just just on that, we could say... I guess in um, in defense of the Soviet perspective, there, I mean the the rapid victory in France by Germany was something of a fluke um, that occurred, you know, just as a historical contingency. I guess we could say. I mean, you have the surprise attack through the Ardennes, and then really um, the tank columns that were going through France and, and uh, encircling um, the Allied troops. If the Allies had sort of realized how overextended the Germans were, they could have cut them off. Um, and recovered. I mean, when you look at the raw numbers, the, the Allies had the the material available to actually defeat the Germans, but they sort of, uh, I guess it was an issue of a morale in large part, particularly with the French and after World War I, uh, they just weren't really capable of putting up the fight necessary in order to defeat the Germans. Not, not that I'm, you know, um, putting down the French military or anything, but they were fairly quick to come to peace terms when, you know, the French could have attempted to hold out for much longer or, or been more aggressive in their attacks against, or in their, their um, counteroffensive against the Germans. Um, so, you know, the, from, from just from looking at the numbers, I mean, what's the, what Stalin expected to have happen um, makes sense from his perspective. Yeah. Let's see. All right. Initially, Stalin and Molotov had been pleased when they learned of the German offensive. When Schulenberg shared the news, Molotov could scarcely conceal his delight, the ambassador reported to Berlin on May 10th. Stalin Molotov, Stalin, Molotov told Schulenberg, fully understood Hitler's need to protect Germany from the predations of the British-French imperialism and had no doubt that we will be successful. The rapidity of the German victories was alarming, however. Stalin and Molotov would have preferred a slow, grinding, bloody battle of attrition, a German victory, yes, but one that weakened Hitler almost as much as his enemies. According to Khrushchev's later recollection, after learning the extent of the Allied debacle later in May, Stalin 
cursed the French and he cursed the British, asking how could they have let Hitler smash them like that. Nonetheless, the news was not all that bad from the Soviet perspective. In a flash, the Allied threat to Stalin's southern flank via British Air Command in Iraq and Wagon's French Middle Eastern Army in Syria was erased, literally, in that Wagon was recalled to Paris on May 20th to take over the wavering French High Command. Whether or not British expeditionary force fighting a rear guard battle while retreating to the English Channel at Dunkirk survived to fight another day, the British had been thrown squarely on the defensive. Simultaneously, simultaneous with the retreat in France and the Low Countries, the Allied position in Narvik was abandoned, and with the last troops, along with the Norwegian ex-government and royal family, evacuated between June 2nd and 7th. The Germans were now supreme in Scandinavia. Once France fell as expected, London would face the prospect of German air raids and the threat of an amphibious invasion. The idea of a British offensive in the Soviet Arctic or against Baku was now fantastic. Meanwhile, the political shakeup in London following the debacles in Norway and France, which brought the 65-year-old Winston Churchill to power in Downing Street, was also tailor-made for Stalin's purposes. With a well-earned reputation for being tougher on Hitler than his predecessor had been, Churchill was also correspondingly softer on Stalin. That Churchill was viewed in Finland and the Baltic region as a Soviet sphere of influence was well known in Paris, if not fully trusted in Moscow, where he was still remembered as an arch-anti-communist from the Russian Civil War days. High hopes were expressed in the British Daily Worker and pro-Soviet front organizations in London, such as the Russia Today Society, that Churchill would purge the cabinet of Stalinphobes like Chamberlain and Halifax and put an end to the previous government's policy of hostility towards the Soviet Union. Although his political position was not as strong enough to get rid of Chamberlain and Halifax, Churchill did bring the Labour Party leader, Clement Attlee, to appoint on Attlee's recommendation a Soviet-sympathizing Labour MP, Stafford Cripps, as ambassador to Moscow. It was a clear olive branch to Stalin. Cripps had been recommended to Churchill by Maisky, the Soviet ambassador in London. The days of Sir William Seeds and John Legrucatel rooting for the Finns to rout the Russians were over. When Stalin received him on July 1st, Cripps promised to forward any confidential message the Vots wished to get through to Churchill. Although Stalin remained wary, Churchill was clearly a huge improvement over Neville Chamberlain. The Vots could not have asked for a better advocate in Whitehall. Yeah, so obviously uh, Stalin got in Churchill the most pliable leader he could have asked for. And, uh, you know, you can uh, check out Pete and Thomas's uh, streams on Churchill and the focus and his entire history in that regard. I don't think we need to elaborate yeah, no. on that here. <laughs> no, I, I think that that's a pretty great series and a great uh, couple of streams to listen to. A further coup for Soviet interests came on June 10th, 1940, when Mussolini's Italy, piggybacking on Germany's victories, opportunistically declared war on Britain and France. Italy's woeful military performance in southeastern France left much to be desired. Nonetheless, the transformation of the diplomatic firmament was revolutionary. Just three months before, Stalin had faced the prospect of a British-French-Italian intervention against him in Finland. Now, France was spent. Itali the Italian intervention against the Allies would keep the British busy in the Mediterranean for the foreseeable future, fending off threats to Egypt and the Suez Canal. With, rel with the relatively sympathetic Churchill in power in London and the Soviet sympathizing Crips in Moscow, mighty Britain had almost been turned from Soviet adversary to ally. For yeah, these, so, uh, yeah, go the, ahead. The with the, the war as it's developed at this point, there's there's zero possibility of a British attack in the Soviet Union now because now they're going to have to defend their uh, colonies in Africa from the uh, Italians. You know, although the Italians, as as that 
you know, paragraph notes aren't particularly adept. I mean, they still have to devote their resources there. And of course, they're still at war with Germany. So with a war on two very large fronts like that, um, there's, uh, you know, there's just no way. So Stalin's now totally safe from uh, any British attacks on him. And, you know, the Germans are still tied up in the West. Yep. For these and other reasons, Soviet officials were wholly supportive, in public at least, of the German invasion of France and the Low Countries. The common turn line laid down in Moscow even instructed French men and women via both print propaganda and the soon notorious radio broadcasts of the French Communist Party leader Maurice Therese not to resist the Germans. However absurd this sounded to more patriotic party members, many hundreds of whom, including 21 of the Communist Party of France, 73 parliamentary deputies, tore up their party cards in disgust. In retaliation for the party's support of the invading enemy, 3,000 French communists were arrested, another 2,500 party members were deprived of their posts in city and in town governments. Despite the crackdown, French communists sabotaged French munitions factories and passed out propaganda leaflets to French soldiers with defeatist slogans like, Down with the Imperialist War. The Res later crowed in a radio broadcast from Moscow on June 17th that French imperialism has just suffered its greatest defeat in history. Well, wait till later after the war. <laughs> the, the importance of Soviet economic support for Hitler's war of conquest should not be discounted. Although it is difficult to calculate what exact percentage of petrol used by German panzers and their thrust to the English Channel came from Russian sources, figures of Soviet energy and food exports to Germany are now available. In May and June of 1940, roughly the period of the invasion of France and the Low Countries, the Soviet Union supplied the Reich with 163,000 tons of petrol and 243,000 tons of Ukrainian wheat. During these crucial days of late May and early June 1940, when the Wehrmacht chased down and trapped the British Expeditionary Force at Dunkirk, Soviet oil deliveries ramped up to nearly 4,000 tons per day in order to meet the galloping German demand. In a literal sense, Stalin fueled Hitler's conquest of Western Europe. Yeah, not really an understatement because, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it really was the uh, the tank drive that ended up with the forces in the Low Countries being encircled that sealed it for the Germans. Uh, I, I believe that operation was called Sickle Strike, if I recall correctly. But uh, that that's very significant uh, because you know uh, if it if people don't know, um, mechanized warfare tanks in particular require insane amounts of fuel. And you know the whole story of World War II from the German perspective, in some sense, is Germans' desperation for uh, petroleum products. Yeah, uh, operate or sickle cut. Um, yeah, the the Manstein plan to to cut up Belgium and France the way that they did. The only downside of German victories in the West, from Stalin's perspective, was that they happened far too fast. Just as Mussolini needed, like a jackal, to tear into France's corpse while it was still warm, Stalin would have to stake his own claims while the Battle of France provi provided a media smokescreen. He would also have to move before France's capitulation allowed Hitler to move troops back east, where they might contest Soviet territorial claims in the Baltic states of Romania. As early as May 16th, an article from Izvestia claimed ominously that the crushing German victories in the Low Countries proved that the neutrality of the small states which could, which do not have power to support them, is mere fantasy. On May 25th, Molotov called in the Lithuanian ambassador, alleged that Red Army soldiers had been abducted in Lithuania, and warned that if Lithuania did not halt such provocations, Stalin would take other measures. 
On June 7th, the Lithuanian Prime Minister Anastas Mirkis was summoned to the Kremlin for a vicious tirade by Molotov, which suggested to Mirkis that a Soviet invasion was imminent. Still, if Stalin struck too soon, he might awaken opposition in London as he had done by invading Finland. The Ignatic Churchill, inspired by the successful evacuation of nearly 340,000 Allied troops from Dunkirk, gave his We Shall Never Surrender speech to the Commons on June 4, 1940, suggesting that his cabinet, unlike the ever-hesitant Chamberlain, would not look kindly on dictatorial aggression, though Churchill was speaking of surrendering to Hitler, not Stalin. If Stalin moved too slowly, however, he might encounter opposition from a different kind of triumphant Hitler, reluctant to cede him yet another Soviet conquest won by German arms. Yeah, so this is setting the stage for all of the annexations we're about to read about in the rest of the chapter. Pretty significant period. I mean, I, I suppose Stalin's pacing worked perfectly because it worked at the time, and even in the history books, I mean, how many people talk about the Soviet uh, annexation of the Baltics? Um, or in Romania or elsewhere, you know, while France was um, being uh, or, or in the aftermath of the German conquest of France. Uh, people just don't talk about it, even though the Soviets were uh, vacuuming up large parts of territory, you know, in addition to their conquest that they had already uh, cooperated in with the Germans in Poland. So. When the French capital fell on June 14, Stalin decided that he could wait no longer. With the world mesmerized by the drama in Paris, Molotov wired ultimatums to Tallinn, Riga, and Vilna, Vilnius, accusing all three governments of making war preparations against the Soviet Union. I mean, just what, before a, mid- what a ridiculous concept, you know, like just to, <laughs> yeah. just think about that for a second. I mean, just go look at the Baltic states, even at the time as they were on the map, like the idea that there's some secret uh, entente that was being planned to attack the Soviet Union. I mean, totally ridiculous concept. And I mean, this is pretty common in terms of how Stalin operates as well, as he just makes these completely absurd accusations that are obviously ridiculous, and he just gets away with it every single time. Yeah, he can't keep getting away with it. Just before midnight, Lithuania's foreign minister, Yusas Urbis, was summoned to the Kremlin. Um, it's time to stop joking around, Molotov admonished the Lithuanian. Gamely, Urbis asked, with how many troops do you propose to occupy us? Three or four corps, Molotov replied, meaning how many divisions, the foreign minister asked. Nine to twelve, came the reply. This was enough for Lithuania's president, Anasta Semetona, to flee, who fled, from, who fled to Germany. The next day, 300,000 Soviet troops entered Lithuania to occupy a country of two million people. I mean, just look at that. Yeah, 300,000 to occupy a, a country of 2 million people. That's not 2 million men fighting force. It's just 2 million, the whole population, period. Yeah, it also, um, it also sort of demonstrates the overwhelming numerical superiority of the Red Army in regards to not just the East powers, but even Germany or the Reich itself. Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh... 15% of, of 2 million. So, I mean, you have 15%, a whole brand new military occupying force to take over your country. Yeah, I mean, just, but, just go run the numbers on the current conflict in uh, Ukraine to, to see what a ridiculous percentage that is by comparison. Yeah. Uh, by midnight on June 15th, the Soviet Baltic fleet had enveloped the entire Baltic coastline between Lithuania and Latvia, sealing off the ports in case anyone tried to flee the coming invasion. 
At 2 p.m. on June 16th, Molotov summoned the Latvian ambassador for similar abuse. Latvia was denounced as the ringleader of the Baltic Entente that had proved its hostility to the Soviet Union. Asked, excuse me, asked again to specify how many corps Stalin proposed to invade Latvia with, Molotov answered with ennui, probably two. They would arrive, he added, presently. Next, it was the turn of the Estonian ambassador who arrived in the Kremlin at 2.30 p.m., just as shell-shocked as just as his shell-shocked Latvian colleague was leaving. When the Estonian ambassador protested that his country, unlike Lithuania, had not been accused of provocation against Soviet citizens, Molotov retorted that, Esto that the Estonian government maintained a hostile attitude. Estonia had been singled out for abuse in Pravda because of its mentality of its intelligentsia, which preaches a loyal attitude towards England and expresses its hatred of Germany and everything German. In retaliation for the anti-German Anglophilia, of Estonia's elite citizens, Molotov informed the bewildered ambassador Stalin proposed to occupy the main cities of Estonia, including the capital, Tallinn. Over I mean, the absolute gall of Molotov and Stalin and, and the Soviets in general to do this. I mean, they're even sort of, uh, you know, the, the abuse here is hard to contemplate. I mean, they could just as easily tell them, you know, look, we're, we're just occupying your country uh you you lose but they even they even give these fake reasons uh to the ambassadors themselves in these private meetings uh which just sort of adds to the humiliation then then of course they just have no it's it's purely humiliation because they just have no choice but to just assent to being conquered because you know the soviets are like you know yeah we're just sending in way more troops than you could possibly fight so you know, and he's just summoning them, summoning them in one at a time. Just tell them that they inform that that they lose and just must surrender. And then, you know, giving them these absurd um, um, claims about various provocations for the three governments. I mean, it's it's difficult to imagine what those ambassadors uh, would have felt like after these meetings. Yeah, I mean, I I, I do now want to look up if these ambassadors had kept a journal or a diary or had given their remarks after the war. I, I mean, you could at least, uh, they could at least the, the Molotov could at least have had the decency to just present a straightforward ultimatum without all the uh, bullshit, you know? Yeah, absolutely. They, they really should have, but alas, um, <laughs> I would have respected that way more <laughs> rather than this like made up anti-German Anglophilia, which I mean, even if right, like, what, what point does that have for the Soviets to invade? But again, the gall on these guys. Over the next 48 hours, the Red Army poured into Latvia and Estonia as Molotov had promised, crushing everything and everyone that stood in its path. Latvian President Karlis Ulmanis vowed in one last radio broadcast to his people, I will stay in my place, you stay in yours. He bravely stood duty in the presidential palace until he was seized by the NKVD and deported to a labor camp. The commander of the Latvian border guards, General Ludwig Bolsteins, killed himself rather than to submit to alien power that wants to force us to tear down ourselves, as he wrote in a plaintive suicide note. The Estonian president, Konstantin Potts, was carried off into a, the gulag, vanishing without a trace. He died in Soviet captivity in 1956. Only the Lithuanian president, Smentona, survived fleeing into, into the German Reich, by turning up his trousers and wading across a brook as the Soviet press cruelly taunted. Yeah, understandable. I mean, in retrospect, uh, you know, I also would have fled uh, given what the Soviets do to people. Uh, I mean, not, yeah. not only do they conquer your country under false pretenses, but they also evict your 
I mean, the slaves in the gulags, I mean. It doesn't get more uh, vindictive and petty than that. And just outright evil. Yeah, I would have I would have fled. Um, simple as. I, I, or at least died trying to leave. Um, Soviet occupation, uh, worse than death. In a bizarre coda to Stalin's brutal conquest of three tiny countries that had not even resisted, Molotov called in the German ambassador Schollenberg on the evening of June 17th, the day the Red Army bludgeoned its way into Riga and Tallinn, and expressed the warmest congratulations of the Soviet government on the splendid successes of the German armed forces, who had just completed their route of France. The timing was no coincidence. With the new French government of Marshal Philippe Pétain having sued Hitler for an armistice that morning, Molotov hoped that the Germans would be in a generous mood as he shared the alarming news of Stalin's invasion. Stalin, Molotov explained, had been forced to occupy three Baltic countries in order to prevent them from becoming a launching pad for Anglo-French intrigues. This on the day that France had surrendered to Germany. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. That's that's one of the funniest paragraph. That's the funniest paragraph in the chapter for sure. Um, as uh, it continues, I mean, the the Soviets also just sort of present these ridiculous falsehoods to uh, justify their invasion to the Germans as well. Like, oh, we were doing it because we were protecting you, even though it, it was obviously just naked aggression. Um, it's just, I mean, the Soviet Union really was the original empire of lies. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, by neutralizing the threat posed to Berlin and Moscow by the pro-allied machinations in Tallinn, Riga, and Vilna, Molotov concluded Stalin's move would also prevent the Baltic Entente from quarreling with Germany. And I mean, just just Europe. imagine being um, the German embassy in that case, uh, and the Soviets are telling you this. Like, what a bizarre suggestion that the Baltics were planning on attacking Germany, and so you invaded them because you're a great friend. I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's patently absurd. Yeah. I mean, like let's, this map's a really good scale here. I mean, Finland, they've sued for peace. We've got some occupied territory that you've gotten across, uh, Lake Ladoga. And I mean, you're, you have the Baltic sea and the Gulf of Finland here more or less blockaded and you've gotten exactly what you want. These three countries have been pacified and already, you know, that we just watched the Germans seize, you know, their in influence into Norway and to, and to get a, a a puppet government up, you know, with with Quisling. Like, there's no way that the Allies are in a position at all to launch any sort of offensive. And again, as we find out through the rest of the war, they don't launch an offensive back into Europe until 1944. That's after America's been involved. And so, you know, to, to simply just lie to the face of your, you know, non-aggressive partner. Oh, we've done these things to defend you. Um, yeah, just here is here's that duplicitous diplomacy that we're going to see out of uh, Stalin's regime, both prior to the war, during the war and after the war. Well, minor correction there. They do launch an attack on Italy in 1943. But of course, that's not on the Reich, which is what um, Stalin yeah. is looking for. Yeah, St Stalin's looking for Germany, but I mean, like, the the way to keep Germany occupied, although really with how the Italian forces go, you, you could say that they were still fighting as Germans and Italians as well. But I mean, the, the large, you know, force towards them is, is really with D-Day in, in 44. But yeah, no, thank you for correcting me there on 43, but not what the Soviets were looking for. The German ambassador listened impassively to this imaginative hogwash. 
Delicately, he asked Molotov if it was acceptable for the Germans to hold on to Lithuania's exiled president, who had just required asylum in Berlin. With totalitarian chivalry, Molotov replied, it was the position of the Soviet government that the Germans could do with him as they wished. Interpreting Schoenberg's calm reaction to Molotov's justification of the Baltic invasions as a green light from Berlin, Stalin had Marshal Timoshenko, now defense commissar, write up orders on June 21st instructing commanders of the Red Army's new Baltic military district to disarm the population and shoot anyone who resists. Stalin then assigned three trusted NKVD chiefs who had blooded themselves in the great terror to rule these ex-countries. The loyal Stalin stooge um, Andrei Zadonov arrived in Estonia. Latvia would be purged by A.Y. Vyshinsky and the public prosecutor of the Moscow show trials. Lithuania, the largest and most strategically significant of the countries, would be disciplined into submission by Beria's Georgian comrade Vladimir Dekanosov. And yeah, understandable why the uh, German ambassador would react that way as well, because I mean, how are you how are you supposed to react to uh, being told these obvious lies uh, by Molotov like that? Like, are you just going to outright accuse him of just spinning you obvious bullshit right in front of your face? I mean, it's like, how are you even supposed to conduct diplomacy under conditions like this? Yeah, I mean, you really can't. And he's just got to take it as is because any reaction could potentially play into the wrong hand. And you already know you can't trust these guys to begin with. What followed was a drearily predictable for anyone familiar with Soviet history. The presidents of Estonia and Latvia were the first of tens of thousands of unfortunate Baltic nationals deported into Stalin's network of slave labor camps that summer, um, that summer by the NKVD for the crime of belonging to the wrong social co- category of opposing communism or being perceived as hostile to occupiers. A typical NKVD directive on, of July 7th, 1940 targeted Lithuanians preparatory to liquidation active abolition of leading influence of parties hostile to the state, nationalists, Voldemarists, populists, Christian Democrats, young Lithuanians, Trotskyists, social Democrats, national guardsmen, and others. Literally anyone to the right of Stalin or the party line. Night after night, one Latvian survivor recalled the dreaded black vans of the secret police raced through the streets. Hundreds upon hundreds of men, women, and children were speared away into the vastness of the Soviet Union. Since 1917, expropriation had followed the imposition of Soviet communism on a region as predictably as night follows day, and the Baltic states were no exception. As always, the banks were the first uh, were target first, with those state reserves of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania nationalized as soon as the Red Army secured the capitals. With extraordinary arrogance, Molotov laid the claims of the foreign holdings of the three occupied countries as well, issuing a protest of the U.S. ambassador that the Americans were not turning over to Stalin the Baltic gold reserves held at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. I mean, once also- again, very very typical behavior for the Soviets. It's like they they conquer a country, loot and pillages, liquidate the comp the the population, and then accuse the the United States in this case for some misconduct by not handing over the money they intend to steal. <laughs> yeah, like I th- yeah, just uh, ballsy, you know. Let's see here. Yep. Despite the risk of provoking Hitler, German property holdings in the Baltic region, too, were seized as much as 330 million Reichsmarks worth, as German military intelligence reported to Berlin. Meanwhile, an acute shortage of consumer goods was soon reported in the Baltic region, a mystery explained by the flooding of party stores in Moscow, with what one shopper noticed were unfamiliar foreign items. 
suits, dresses, shoes, chocolate, crackers, cheese, canned goods, and a hundred other items of obviously non-Soviet origin. All this was the overflow of goods from the frontier areas taken over by the Red Army, as Soviet officials admitted, boasting to their comrades about the good things to which the Soviet liberators had helped themselves in the con conquered areas. Horrible as all this was, the expropriated Baltic deportees were, in a way, the lucky ones. Near Kaunas, or Konvo, Lithuania, Dekonozov's NKVD shot 450 arrestees and dumped the bodies in a mass grave. The other Baltic elites were tortured for information. According to the surviving eyewitnesses, victims were bound to trees with iron hoops before being burned alive. Others had their testicles kicked to a pulp, were seated on red-hot stoves, and had needles rammed under their fingernails, had their jaws ripped down to their necks, or had their eyes gouged with their tongues cut out. Now that the Baltic states had been occupied, purged, and expropriated, Romania was next in line. For months, the Soviet press had dropped unsubtle hints about Stalin's hostile intentions towards Romania, with the party organs criticizing Romanians' absorption of Russian Bessarabia into the post-World War I treaties. Why the Romanian claim on Bessarabia, inhabited by virtually no Russians, was imperialist, but the Soviet one was not explained at all. And a particularly sinister touch on April 24, 1940, as Beria's executioners were mass-murdering thousands of Polish prisoners, Molotov warned the Romanian ambassador, George Devesul, that Romania's sheltering of Polish refugees had made an unfortunate impression on the Soviet Union. Yeah, so... The alleged, go ahead. Now, with, with the Romania situation, we're now getting to the final battle lines uh, being drawn on the map where... The uh, Germans and the Soviets are undergoing the process of ironing out their borders so that there's no more um, uh, neutral countries in between them. And of course, the, these will be the actual battle lines of the war that, you know, Hitler intends to launch against the uh, Soviets at this point. So the situation with Romania is pretty critical uh, as we're about to get into. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, here we go. The alleged harboring of Poles in Bucharest was, of course, a red herring justifying Stalin's plainly imperialist hunger for Romanian territory. Soviet designs on the formerly Russian Bessarabia were no secret, even if they had not been acknowledged in the public sections of the Moscow Pact. For years, Soviet bureaucrats had been beavering away, preparing mouthwatering reports for the dimensions, 44,422 square kilometers, a population of 3 million proletarians, and the economic resources of Bessarabia, even as Bolshevik propagandists hammered home the theme that Bessarabia had been stolen from Russia by white guardists in league with the Entente. More ambitiously, and without telling Ribbentrop, Molotov had authorized Soviet diplomats to make the case for the Soviet absorption of Romania Bukovina as well, despite this territory never having belonged to Russia at all. Here, the argument would depend on ethnography, the idea that Bukovina, despite having no Russians to speak of, had a slight plurality of, Euc of Ukrainians, about 38%, or 346,178 Ukrainians, who were allegedly oppressed by a minority of Romanians, 309,733, or 34%. We, we kind of see some parallels with respects to claims of... Uh, I guess sort of the ethnic aspect of it, but again, not to say that these are at all comparable to the uh, ongoing conflict in Ukraine, but I, I can see where our, say, more progressive or State Department friends are looking towards history and making comparisons of, of Stalinism to Putinism. 
Moving more gingerly now that the drama in France was over, Molotov summoned Schollenberg uh, to the Kremlin on June 23rd to sound out the Germans about Soviet claims on Bessarabia. If the Romanians did not agree to cede this former Tsarist province to Stalin, Molotov warned the ambassador that the Soviet Union will have to resolve the question by force of arms. Probing the ambassador for weakness, Molotov pressed Soviet claims on Bukovina too, because it was populated by Ukrainians. Why this justified a Soviet claim on Bukovina, a region never before ruled by Russia and nowhere mentioned in the Moscow Pact or any subsequent agreements, Molotov did not explain beyond saying that he thought it would be reasonable if the Germans said yes. Alas, the ambassador did not agree. Any Soviet move into Romania, Schollenberg warned Molotov, politely but firmly, would excite the jealous attention of other neighbors like Hungary and Bulgaria. If not properly adjudicated in advance, a preemptive Soviet move might throw Romania into chaos, which would threaten German access to Romanian products, especially oil. He could agree to nothing regarding the disposition of Romanian territory, Schollenberg said, before consulting with Ribbentrop, that is, with Hitler. Yeah, so that's an interesting window into how this sort of diplomacy is conducted. I mean, uh, what Ribbentrop is, uh, or, or sorry, what's not Ribbentrop, Schillenberg uh, is basically doing there is he's more or less threatening that, uh, you know, Hungary and Bulgaria are going to um, start annexing parts of Romania as our proxies, basically. That's the implication is that uh, Germany will, will support that uh, to counterbalance any Soviet maneuvering. Yeah. Though coming up empty, Molotov had confirmed for Stalin how vulnerable Germany's strategic position remained in spite of its thumping victories in Western Europe. Other than Baku and the Caucasus, which Stalin controlled, Romanian Plotzi, just north of Bucharest, was Hitler's only source of petrol for the Luftwaffe and the Wehrmacht's panzers and motorized divisions ran on. The only other option was synthetic, synthetic fuel extracted from coal, a hugely expensive process that could supply, at best, only a small fraction of the Reich's needs. Romanian oil, which accounted for more than 50% of German petroleum imports, totaling 1.865 million tons in 1940, against a Soviet share of 32.5%, was Hitler's Achilles heel, and Stalin could not pass up an opportunity to exploit this vulnerability if he could. In a sign of Stalin's ever-growing appetite for territory, Molotov summoned the Italian ambassador, Signor Augusto Rosso, to the Kremlin later that same day to broach a possible Italian so um, an Italian-Soviet carve-up of Turkey. So long as Italy supported Soviet claims on the Ottoman Straits, the Soviet primacy in the Black Sea, and most importantly, the enlargement of the Soviet Union in the area southeast of Batumi, eastern Turkey, Molotov promised Ambassador Rosso that Stalin would not oppose Italian claims in other regions of Turkey, whatever they might turn out to be. Although this intrigued the prospect of a Turkish partition agreement, updated by the notorious Sykes-Picoa Agreement of 1916 for the fascist communist age, Rosso could only reply that, like his German counterpart Schellenberg, he would need to consult higher authorities. Molotov is very clever and excellent as a diplomat. I mean, what he's doing here is he just he's just sort of testing how the opposing parties would feel about Soviet uh, annexations in various regions, right? Like he's never seriously considering that the Italians are just going to be given half of Turkey in some in some way. He's just testing how they and by proxy the Germans might react to um, Russian operations in um, in Turkey. So. Really interesting stuff to see these sort of intrigues. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, 
not to I'm going to I'm going to shill slightly, but I've done two streams on the history and the aftermath of the Sykes-Picot agreement and the rise of the Israeli state with um, Hitman, both on his channel and mine. So uh, we, we went into a really great book about about the, the legacy in the sand. And it's uh, really a fantastic piece of history in its own right. Uh, definitely well worth looking into. On June 25th, 1940, after Schellenberg had consulted Ribbentrop and Hitler, Molotov and the German ambassador had gotten down to business. Ribbentrop, Schellenberg informed Molotov, had agreed to Stalin's claim on Bessarabia, as promised in the Moscow Pact, as long as this claim was settled peacefully. But when Mos Molotov repeated his talking point, the Bukovina was Ukrainian, Schellenberg whipped out an ethnographic encyclopedia. He informed Molotov that many other peoples besides Ukrainians, including Romanians, Hungarians, Jews, and even Germans, lived in Bukovina. Molotov, annoyed, retorted that Schollenberg was using an old Romanian encyclopedia that was not to be trusted. Um, yeah, that's another funny bit where uh, Schollenberg tries to BTFO Molotov with facts and logic. Um, pretty funny, the idea that he... I mean, he must have brought this this encyclopedia with him, exactly expecting uh, to be confronted with this argument. And I'm I'm sure he flipped to the exact page and pointed to it uh, to Molotov. I mean, it's it's pretty funny to imagine this actually happening. Oh, to be a fly you, in the wall you don't, in that room. You don't just whip out an encyclopedia, right? <laughs> like, yeah, no one. Well, unless you're unless you're Ron DeSantis pulling out like you know gay porn on a debate stage with uh, Gavin Newsom. Wait, what? <laughs> they 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 had they were talking about like the LGBT books and shit, and he just like pulled out. Yeah, uh, DeSantis pulls out like a paper and he has it censored over. He's like, "This is what's happening in like California schools," and it was just like, "Who?" So you're you're carrying like weird porn in your pocket <laughs> to make a point. <laughs> I had no idea. I I didn't watch. Oh my god, that is hilarious. I only watched the debate because Pat Casey was doing the de uh, debate. Yeah, I, I saw I he did. I might go rewatch that or, or watch I haven't it watched it to, to be honest and to give him credit. I've only watched the Republican debates because of his coverage. Otherwise I would be just ignoring it because you know, it's, it's, it's Trump really, but yeah, it's just who carries a or old Romanian encyclopedia. After a heated debate about the ethnography of the sub Carpathian region, Molotov finally proposed a quid, a, a crude quid pro quo with the Soviets taking over Romanian Bukovina and Bessarabia and allowing German troops to operate Pletsi with its critical oil wells and refineries. Yeah, Don't so, worry. So, um, yeah, go ahead. Schulenberg uh, must have succeeded there in some capacity, given that Molotov is now just proposing, you know, crude divisions of territory rather than sort of doing his usual trickery. So we, we can imagine that Schulenberg was actually, uh, um, you know, ruffling uh, Molotov's feathers here a bit and, actually getting him to give some ground by just sort of being uh, straightforward about, you know, their intentions and, and what's going on here. Yeah, he must have. Yeah, he, he got a win somewhere. That's for sure. Um, how much? I don't know. And we kind of already see it play out as the, the war eventually breaks out. Uh, don't worry, Molotov promised the German we will take over these territories peacefully, but not slowly. Schallenberg replied that Ribbentrop had given him diplomatic leeway on Bukovina and proposed a compromise. The Soviets could have the province's northern half abutting their zone of the occupied Poland. The German diplomats in Bucharest, he assured Molotov, would tell the Romanians to give way. 
It was now the, ter uh, the turn of Romania's ambassador to receive the Stalin treatment. Just before midnight on June 26, 1940, Molotov handed uh, Davidescu the ultimate ultimatum giving the Romanian Romania 24 hours to accede to a rash of onerous demands from pulling troops back 10 kilometers from the Soviet border to ceding Bessarabia and northern Bukovina. When David, or David Su said that he needed more time, Molotov responded bluntly that what Stalin had demanded was the ceding of territory to the Soviet Union, not a negotiation. He then added that in order to facilitate an immediate occupation of these territories by the Red Army, he expected Romania by June 28th to finish clearing out troops from Chernovitsky, or today's Chernovitsky, Kotin, Sorokoy, and Kishniev and a variety of other cities that I'm not going to even try to pronounce, to evacuate all Romanian soldiers from the provinces of Bessarabia and northern Bukovina within three to four days, soon were just reduced to three days. As for unarmed Romanian citizens and officials, Molotov agreed, as if being generous, that they would be allowed to stay in the occupied provinces so long as they promptly turned over all government property to the Soviet military authorities. Among the property claimed were the rail networks of Bessarabia and northern Bukovino, including all locomotive engines, 157 and 117 respectively, first-class railway wagons, 256, 295, ordinary passenger wagons and rolling stock, 4109 and 2435, and cisterns and storage tanks, 312 and 120. So here we go. Here's our, our map of territorial changes. Western Poland, Eastern Poland, Bessarabia. Then we got here Bukovina, Chernovitsky, Sokra. But yeah, and, um, and, and you can see how just important the oil resources are for, for Germany to get it in and over. But, you know, this is a, a good... There we go. Yeah, important yeah. point that we mentioned shortly after is uh, the Soviet border being extended up to the mouth of the Danube. Correct. And like you had mentioned earlier, we're, we're, we're seeing the final border to where the battle lines of the Eastern Front are, are will be drawn. Yeah, because you Danube have, Delta. you see Poland right there, that's already uh, split by the two powers, right? The Baltic states yeah. are bordering uh, Prussia and once this situation is resolved, uh, then you have the final battle lines drawn and then the inevitable war to follow. I mean, you have to imagine that there must have been a sense between, including on the Russian side, although Stalin was apparently surprised attacked. I mean, they must have had some sense that war with Germany had to be imminent given the sort of creeping advances toward each other like this. And I mean, this is 1940, but even if you wanted to look at today's borders, I mean, here's Transnistria, which still has a, a Russian military presence. Here's, you know, Lov, Liv, Laval, um, where a lot of uh, operations still happen with respects to uh, the war in Ukraine, where a lot of armaments and stuff gets been deployed. There's there's Kiev and there's the Black Sea. We've got yeah. the Soviet border all the way down. I mean, and, I mean, interesting. You can see, uh, you can see Lvov's uh, Polish territory there. Uh, yeah, pretty interesting. Also, uh, you know, the Moldovian SSR gets created as we're about to see as well, which is what that what Bessarabia basically turns into, um, or parts of it at least. Uh, so, you know, th these events uh, remain on the map to this day in some capacity. Indeed. 
On June 28th, the Soviet invasion of Romania began on schedule, actually ahead of schedule as the first troops crossed the Bessarabian frontier at 4 a.m., despite the Romanian military authorities having been assured they had until 10 a.m. to evacuate. Adding to the helplessness of the Romanian position, Hungarian troops had mobilized on the Transylvanian frontier, and Bulgarian troops were massing near the southern um, Dobrosha, which Bucharest had wrested from Sofia in post-war treaties. Britain, though theoretically a guarantor of Romania's borders, was far too away to offer military assistance and had not promised to do so. Italy didn't was stop him last time. <laughs> no, it did, no, it did not. It really didn't. Uh, Italy was sympathetic too, but Mussolini could promise nothing without Berlin's approval. Only the German government was in a position to help, and the Germans, worried about a possible disruption of their oil supplies, had warned Bucharest not to resist Soviet demands. Diplomatically isolated and massively outmatched by incoming Soviet forces, there was little for the Romanians to do but to comply with Stalin's brutal ultimatum and withdraw. Even in complying, Romanian troops, given three days to withdraw and even denied their final six-hour grace period, found themselves harried by the invaders who took one Romanian official complained the courses of jostling the Romanians and cutting their retreat in order to possess themselves of large quantities of provisions, munitions, and war material. This humiliation would not be forgotten. Yeah, once again, this- typical of Stalin, as I alluded to in the beginning of the discussion, Stalin always takes more or gives less uh, than is promised. Uh, whatever, whatever the deal is, um, it's all, uh, he always goes one step further. Yep. Not that there was much of a deal. I mean, it's an ultimatum. Like, we're going to invade you in three days, invades in two and a half, you know? Yeah, not, not like there's a lot of room here to say that, you know, any any real leeway is given. I'm, I've got my quote-unquote consent. I'm, I'm going to just go forward and, and do what's necessary. I have the... Um, I guess you know we we have the the thinly veiled justification for for invasion. You know the 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 diplomatic kayfabe is over. I'm going to invade. In this way, Stalin achieved yet another cheap victory for communism. As Molotov boasted before the Supreme Soviet, the peaceful occupation of Bessarabia expanded the Soviet frontiers by 45,000 square kilometers, on which lived 3.2 million souls. The acquisition of the northern Bukovina brought another 6,000 square kilometers and half a million people. In less than two weeks, counting the Baltic annexation, Stalin had acquired 10 million new subjects for communism. Added 13 million acquired the previous fall in Poland. The Soviet population had expanded by 23 million, minus, though Molotov neglected to mention this, those unfortunate souls crushed underfoot, and the Soviet invasions are executed by the NKVD. Stalin had seized coastal Bessarabia up to the mouth of the Danube, giving the Soviet Union, as Molotov boasted, control of the mightiest river in Europe, whence flows the commercial production of many European lands. The Soviet move into Bukovina split Transylvania in two, effectively surrounding the Wallachian plain and its rich farmland and the oil wells and refineries that fueled Hitler's war machine. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian and Moldovian inhabitants of the province, now known as Moldovia Soviet Socialist Republic, Molotov added, would now enjoy the, quote, blessings of communism. These, inc- these blessings included, by the now familiar litany of Soviet outrages, from the looting of banks and private businesses to the mass deportation of objectionable classes of people. The only difference between the Sovietization of occupied Romania and that of eastern Poland and the Baltics was that there were no more illusions about what Soviet occupation meant. Despite giving, being given scarcely a day's notice, locals rapidly loaded up on whatever movable property they could carry and fled as fast as they, cl- they could. One evacuee from Chernovitsky recalled, 
Churches rang their bells as if tolling a death knell. People were running. Some knelt down to pray. Many were in a state of shock. A low wail was running down the streets. The last train left at 2 p.m. on June 28th, packed with people and whatever they could stuff into their rail cars. Those left behind were less fortunate. As in every other Soviet occupation, banks and private businesses were nationalized, including substantial German holdings, and another hostile Soviet move with more serious implications for the Moscow Pact. In the first two weeks after the Soviet invasion, 51,391 ex-Romanian citizens were taken into custody by occupation authorities. By August 2nd, 1940, the total had surpassed 200,000. By the year's end, 300,000 Romanians had been deported from Moldovia to gulag camps in the Soviet interior. With this opportunistic move against the Baltic states, Bessarabia and northern Bukovina in the wake of German humiliation of France, Stalin was wringing every last drop of nectar out of his honeyed partnership with Hitler, while still, somehow, escaping the hostility of Hitler's opponents. Britain, in what Churchill called the country's finest hour, now stood alone against Nazi Germany. For some reason, though, Britain had not declared war on Britain's alliance partner, despite Stalin having invaded the same number of sovereign countries since 1939 as Hitler had. Seven. But there were limits to Hitler's patience, and Stalin had just about reached them. And that brings us to the end of the chapter. Yeah, well, uh, as we know there, I mean, Churchill was simply waiting on the Soviet Union to declare war on, on Germany or Germany to attack the Soviet Union. So, of course, there, you know, again, it's a good conclusion because it sort of just blows out of the water. This this concept that, like, the war against Germany was some sort of war against the these imperialist invasions or whatever you want to call them, uh, because, you know, the, the principle is not applied uh, to Russia or the Soviet Union for some reason. So, you know, one has to ask, well, why, why is this principle uh, asymmetrically applied between these two powers that are more or less doing the exact same thing? And, you know, just a few years ago or even less, you were even contemplating war with one or both of them. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I, and again, um, you know, there's no, the a big reason why this book is so important for people to read. And this is why you see so many bread tubers and tankies outright deny this text is, is that you're witnessing an, an equal level of evil or an equal level of aggression being played out by, um, the Soviet union. You know, we, we literally have the same number of countries that have been invaded, um, you know, we're seeing hundreds of thousands of people being deported into Soviet labor camps, the nationalization of territories people led and have led to, you know, ethnic diasporas that have never really come back home um, after the war. And, you know, no attention is given to this in, in mainstream historiography of, of World War II. Everything has been uniquely focused on the Germans and how uniquely evil Hitler was. But this book, you know, really does basically just sort of shoot a silver bullet in that and saying like, well, really, no, like Stalin has had Hitler by the strategic war machine resources of oil and wheat. They've gotten everything that they've wanted out of this. Uh, Stalin is biding his time, hoping that Germany can can get a bloody nose before they unleash the the masses on them. And again, like for you and I, we're, we're kind of already aware of this. It's just that, you know, this book and by no means is, is going to, He's, you know, Sean McMeekin's not David Irving or anything, but this poses the uncomfortable truth and question to a lot of people who look at World War II is this uniquely ugly German war um, when it, it is far, far more complicated than that. And you can't ignore the Soviet Union or Joseph Stalin because this, as the book's title tells us, this is his war. 
above anything else. And to pad out that point a little bit, I mean, there's really nothing even strange about, much less unique, but not even strange about the German Reich at this time. Uh, you don't even just have to look at Stalin. We could also look at the ongoing war in China um, uh, between China and Japan, um, which is a similar conflict. Um, you know, we could even bring up the fact that, okay, well, Italy declares war on the British and the British have to defend Egypt now. It's like, well, why Why do the British own Egypt? It's, it's okay to occupy other countries if you're the good guys, I guess, but it's not okay to occupy them if you're the bad guys. So like, you, you could even look at the British Empire at this time and, you know, just sort of recognize that all these powers are more or less behaving the same way. Like I said, the war is a war between three powers, the the Soviets, the Germans, and the British and allies. And Stalin wins the war, ultimately, um, by defeating the uh, the Germans using the British as a weapon and leaving them completely debilitated. Yeah, and I mean, like, the, the first few chapters, as we've already listened to for the, the audience... You know, his foreign policy has been very clear to get these other powers to to kill themselves first and then to seize and and reign both ideologically and to, you know, secure the blessings of communism for the future communists of, of the world that they're going to Sovietize. Um, of course, that doesn't entirely play out the way that Stalin had envisioned. But as I've said in other recordings, I really do recommend people read Rizard Lugutko's book, The Demon and Democracies, this Polish excuse me, politician, where he's he's asking bare basic questions like, how come we didn't kill any communists after the end of the Cold War? Like, how come we didn't arrest or interrogate these guys? Well, it turns out communists make really good social democrats and leftists, um, and they can now participate in democracy and move things towards a an ideologically communist direction. So, you know, Kovefe Anon on Twitter, who likes to, you know, he's famous for, you know, saying uh, the woke are more correct than the mainstream. But he's also said, you know, let, let, let me tap the sign and simply say, look, Bolshevism won World War II and we're dealing with the consequences of that victory. But uh, with that being the end of the chapter, Charlemagne, where can people find your excellent work and what are your overall thoughts on the book? Well, it's a great book. I should probably reread it in its entirety at some point. Um, as has been pointed out, um, it's sort of a a reboot or a remake. I'm not sure what you call this in a nonfiction category, but there have been books written by this like this before. Uh, but Stalin's War is excellent because it has access to new uh, archives from the when you know the Russians were a bit more open back when the research were was done on this. And this is just sort of the informa information everyone should know. I mean. It, it's presented in a very straightforward, well-cited, factual way um, that provides an alternative narrative uh, regarding World War II that doesn't stray into what's typically considered, you know, far-right territory or something like that. So I think it's an extremely important book in that regard. You know, even if uh, some of this work has been done before, it's nevertheless important that books like this continue to be made and reviewed like we're doing here so that people understand that there are more than one way. There's more than one way to interpret the events of world war two, uh, specifically ways contra the, um, how you've been taught, um, you know, just in, in school and society in general on television, all of that. So extremely important book, very easy read too. I mean, if I recall, it's around 700 pages and you could really just kind of breeze through it. Um, maybe it should have been two volumes, but, 
that's that's the only way real criticism they can apply is it's kind of thick. Uh, but yeah, you can find me on uh, the Neo Reactor blog. You can find my Moldbug or whatever videos I have uh, on YouTube. I'm you know covering the Ukraine war a lot more these days on my Charlemagne channel. But main place I always recommend people to go is just the Old Glory Club YouTube channel and Substack blog. And of course, uh, you know you'll be able to catch us on Millennial this year uh, in December. So definitely check that out. I should be on that stream as uh, one of the representatives of the club. And yes, that's it. uh, it's fantastic stuff. Yeah, I mean, and really one of the best parts of any nonfiction book is the footnotes and the citations. I mean, the, the text itself is over 800 pages, but 212 pages of those of that text is the footnotes and the, the citations. Highly recommend that you guys take your own time to investigate that. And um it's really good stuff. But Charlemagne, your links will be in the description. This will probably be public in a, in a week or two. But uh, thanks so much for coming on. This is a really great and important book for us to cover. And um, as for the audience, if you're listening early, I appreciate your continued financial support. And if you're listening once it's public, um, your ongoing viewership means that much to me and more. So until then, I'll see you all next time.